welcome to the Unraveling Science podcast, the podcast where we listen to the stories that shape the science, but also the scientist. I'm your host, Dr. Megan Hanlon, and I'm so happy to be back for season four. This season, I'll be bringing you stories mainly featuring Irish scientists abroad, but will also feature some key Irish researchers working here at home. We have such a diverse season to look forward to, from ecology to physics, paleontology to neuroscience, and so much more. So, if you're ready, let's begin Unraveling Science. This season, I'm extremely grateful to be continuing to work with our wonderful sponsors, Biosciences Limited. Biosciences are now part of Thermo Fisher Scientific. You can check out what they supply at thermofisher.com. So, Professor Ellen Roach, Associate Professor in the Department of Medical Engineering and the Institute of Medical Engineering and Science at MIT, is my guest on the podcast today. So Ellen directs the Therapeutic Technology Design and Development Lab at MIT, and her research focuses on applying innovative technologies to the development of cardiac devices. She has been the recipient of multiple awards, including the Fulbright International Science and Technology Award, the Wellcome Trust Seed Award in Science, and she's an NIH Trailblazer Award, amongst many, many others. So with that in mind, Ellen, welcome to the Unraveling Science podcast. Um, I'm delighted to have you here, and I'm delighted to have you here as an Irish researcher abroad, um, flying the Irish flag uh, over in the States. So yeah, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having. It's a pleasure. So I suppose to start, um, I'm wondering, you know, what you were like growing up and in school and was this interest in kind of science and technology and engineering there from an early age or what were kind of your interests, say, in, in primary leading into secondary school? Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, I grew up in Galway and uh, in school I was always interested in, in maths and um, in biology as well and chemistry. I didn't take physics. Uh, in secondary school, but I was interested in in biology, chemistry, and I really loved maths even since primary school. Um, so I thought about doing medicine, but then I really wanted to keep some of the maths part of it. Um, so at the time in in Galway in the university, there was a new degree in biomedical engineering. I think it was only like two or three years old when I when I started it. And for me, it was good, just a good combination of, of both sides, like the medical side and then the engineering side. So there I learned more um, on the physics and engineering topics and really, really enjoyed them too. So I was really happy with, with my choice. It's a four-year degree and you spend um, spend eight months in third year in industry. So I worked in um, a company called Mednova that worked on a, a cardiovascular device um, and that really got me into to cardiac devices. And then I went to work with them after I graduated. And they got acquired by a bigger company. So I ended up going to um, California at the time for four years with, with Abbott Vascular. Um, so really kind of got into cardiac devices and you know how they get approved and tested. Um, and that kind of started uh, started me down the path of, of working on devices that improve cardiac disease. Um, when I was there four years, though, I decided I wanted to do more study. Um, so I came back to Ireland and I did a master's in bioengineering in Trinity College in Dublin. And I was also working in Medtronic. It was a part-time master's. I was working in Medtronic as well at the time. Um, and then I kind of up the bug to to go back and do more study and then I applied for a Fulbright award 
to do a PhD in the US. And when I got that, I um, I went to Harvard and I did my PhD in kind of soft robotics and tissue engineering, which were two new um, new areas. And I applied them both to cardiac devices. And when I was about to defend my PhD thesis uh, job, a faculty position came up here at MIT, which is just a mile away from Harvard. And I interviewed for it. Um, it's a it's a very kind of fitting role for me because it's between the Department of Mechanical Engineering and the Institute for Medical Engineering and Science. So I was very fortunate to get the, uh, this faculty position. I went back to Ireland for two years, did a postdoc um, in Galway with Peter McHugh in computational modeling of devices. And then I came back here in 2017. So the group is it's just over four years old now and that was a very long-winded story of my past year. <laughs> no it was great I, I suppose just like you know going back to that idea that you were thinking of doing medicine but you also wanted yeah. the kind of engineering and I suppose biomedical engineering was probably a perfect mix of the two. Yeah yeah it really was yeah I did I did study um, medicine as well in between industry and, and starting um, my faculty position here um I did two years of, of, of medicine more to fully understand kind of some of the pathologies and conditions, not to uh, necessarily practice medicine, but uh, really interested in both, really at the intersection of both. I think it's, it's really important to kind of have a deep understanding of the physiology and the pathology to work, to work on and design, you know, implantable devices that that live in the body and evolve with time because there's always dynamic cellular responses and foreign body responses. So, you know, it's, it's really important to me to fully understand how they affect those and how they affect the mechanics of the heart. The heart is a very, you know, mechanical organ. So well, sorry, when you when you went um, to the States, so you were there for four years, was it over in California initially? Yeah, I was. Yeah, so I uh, went with industry. I was four years in California. Yeah, I went actually um, originally on a graduate program that was uh, that IBEC funded. It was called an expert orientation program, and basically you spent six months in a company in Ireland and then six months with a sister company of theirs abroad. Uh, so I started that for it was meant to be six months, and then I got involved in some testing for regulatory approval. Really enjoyed it, so I ended up there four years. And were you like very excited to go to America? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I was <laughs> delighted. I mean, I was like twenty-one. I think it was the year after I finished college, and the first time I went over, I was like just so excited. I mean, I had been there for J one summer. I, I spent a J one summer in New Jersey and in Chicago, so I knew US. But this was San Francisco, a really cool city, and I was working, so I had some money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I came home briefly then and went back um, on kind of an expatriate contract. They had a, a good group of Irish people from Abbott went over because we were setting up the manufacturing process there and doing some R&D work. So um, that was amazing because, you know, there was a group of us and we were like in accommodation right in the city that, that the company were paying for. And it was like just a dream. It was right before the recession so I think it was a little bit of a, this bubble where we were you know really living the good life at, at such a kind of a young stage so it was it was great. Yeah and you know I'm always intrigued by people who essentially I suppose 
left academia in a way and then went back. So, you know, yeah. you know, when I when I do this podcast, sometimes people put in ask me questions that they want answered. And one of the questions that always comes up is, was there ever a point that you wanted to leave academia, which I suppose you did your undergrad you were working and then I suppose the question for you is why did you come back then yeah I, I get asked this quite a bit I, I think um, for me in undergrad um, that experience in industry was really positive I had great colleagues and I had a really nice project so that was in third year and I knew that I wanted to work in that company after I graduated so I didn't even think of going on to a master's or a PhD at that point and um, that you know, I, I really knew that I would be happy kind of working in that company and and I applied for this export orientation program. So that was kind of my uh, first like post-graduation uh, program. And then I loved working in, in the US. Uh, and, I, you know, I think I could have been really happy staying in industry. It wasn't like I wanted to leave industry, but there were times uh, I was, you know, at say some of the preclinical trials of some of the devices we were working on and I did feel that I was missing some of that kind of very fundamental understanding both on the biological side but I felt that it would be nice to have complete freedom to develop devices that maybe were you know kind of a blue blue sky or like very Mm. open in which way they would go some times in industry there's constraints because it's like business and there's decisions that are are made you know at, at executive levels and at levels higher than I was at the time about which way projects should go or which projects proceed or not and often you know the, the goal is to uh, move things get them and translate them to patients so that they can help them and do that in a short time frame so some of the kind of very fundamental exploratory work I thought would be interesting to do and uh, I really knew that I wanted to get a higher level education not just um uh, bachelor's degree so you know I, I didn't know myself if I would uh, really enjoy being back in academia so I started with the master's to kind of test the water and run when I enjoyed that I enjoyed the research part of that um, then I thought okay it's a good time to, to do the PhD and so am I right in saying that you know when you applied for the PhD the Fulbright award you were like one of two Irish people to get the award that year yeah like that must have been huge and also to be moving over to Harvard which is you know one of the top universities in the world um what was that experience like I suppose moving over there yeah it was it was fantastic um yeah I interviewed for Fulbright and um the other person who got it was Liz who uh, you know I was great friends with throughout the program because the Fulbright program kind of um, this was the International Science and Technology Award and they had multiple annual events where they would immerse you in different cities around the US and cultures so it was a really amazing experience um, I didn't I wasn't sure if I would go to Harvard or what graduate school I would go to so uh, that program they help you to apply and they kind of work with you through the application process so I applied to maybe 10 schools and I was interested in in a number of them including Columbia and New York uh, Northwestern and Chicago Berkeley and uh, in California so I did go and visit some of them I mean often if you're admitted to uh, to graduate programs there's kind of open days or recruitment days 
Um, so I went to visit some of them. And, and when I got to Harvard, I met Professor David Mooney, who I ended up, um, he was one of my co-advisors for my PhD. Uh, I just really liked the work he was doing and it was something new for me. I thought if I'm going to do a PhD, I want to learn something new. And I didn't have a lot of background in cell culture, tissue engineering. It was very more much on the device design and you know mechanical, biomedical kind of engineering and not so much on the bioengineering side. So I thought that would be a good challenge. And I really liked, you know, the atmosphere around Harvard and uh, I just got a good feel for it when I was there and I really liked the labs and you know the, the we're part of the Beast Institute which encouraged collaboration between the different labs um, be the tissue engineering materials or more kind of robotics so I decided to go there and um, when I started then I met my other co-advisor Professor Connor Walsh who's an Irish um, he's a Trinity graduate and he is a professor in robotics at Harvard um, and then ended up doing a rotation with him and then ended up having both of them as my advisors. So very different labs, but it was really amazing to work in such different environments and and you've learned so many new skills. Yeah. And, you know, we, we'll get into your research um, in, in a bit, but I suppose as well, you then came back to Galway and were you planning to stay or did you always know no. you wanted to go back? No, so I um I interviewed for this position at the end of my PhD and I I knew I had it before I went home, but I had this two year home rule with my visa and that was part of the kind of some of the stipulations of the Fulbright Award that you, you need to come home for at yeah. least two years. Um so I took the opportunity to do a postdoc and was able to I was actually encouraged by uh, the hiring committee to defer by two years because um, they, you know, they knew that a postdoc would be good experience and I could start planning what I would do in the lab. And I learned um, new skills on the computational modeling side. So it was great for me to go back to work with, with Peter McHugh, who I knew from my undergrad days, and um, work in his group and do some of the, of the simulation side. Of, um, of the devices we were working on. And that was really great because we still do a lot of that work in the lab and uh, I hadn't done it in my PhD, so it was a new skill. And I have, you know, a subgroup in the lab that work on computational modeling and it really helps us in the design. And I suppose thinking about you being an Irish researcher abroad now, do you think you're you're set at MIT or? or... <laughs> it's a great question. Um, I mean, who knows? It's it's hard to say. I mean, there's great research going on in Ireland as well, and there's there's amazing people that I collaborate with a lot um, in you know in Galway, and there's great research going on in Trinity and uh, Royal College of Surgeons, CD. There's there's just amazing um, work going on. So, who knows? At the moment, uh, things are are going well here. So. Yes, yeah, so let's talk about the your research. So you're now, I suppose, have your own research group um, at MIT. And I, talk to me about um, the kind of world of biomedical engineering and soft robotics and, and what that could do for, I suppose, diseases such as, as heart defects and, and heart failure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot of really interesting work going on in the cardiac device space and has been quite a quite some time um 
you know, in industry, I worked on um, stents that keep vessels open um, after a person has a blockage or a heart attack. I also worked on replacement valves for replacing valves when they become like, calcified and they don't uh, function as well anymore. Um, then, you know, during my PhD, I got more into like dynamic assist devices. So working on because the heart is a dynamic organ um, by its nature, uh, I was interested in using soft robotic approaches to augment uh, the heart function. Um, so soft robotics is uh, about a decade old, the, the real burgeoning field of soft robotics, I guess. Uh, people have been working on it for longer, but it became really popular kind of when I was starting out in graduate school, 2011. And you know, at the time I thought this could be really good um, technology to to assist the heart. And I ended up making, you know, a sleeve that goes around the heart to help it to pump. Um, and it was synchronized with the heartbeat. So like an artificial muscle that goes around the heart. Um, if the muscle of the heart itself isn't pumping effectively, so if a patient has heart failure. Uh, so that was really exciting, kind of coupling this technology with the dynamic organ. It was kind of one of the first examples of using soft robotics for medical applications. And that field has kind of grown a lot since. So that was one of my biggest projects in my PhD. Um, I also worked on a defect closure device. So uh, again, a soft material, but not a dynamic material, but a soft material that closes a hole in the heart and it's delivered through a minimally invasive catheter so you know you can go in through the leg for example and go up to the heart and then the device that I worked on um, has two balloons and a an adhesive that's activated by light there's like a little fiber optic in the catheter and um, that shines light on the on the adhesive so it kind of glues the patch to the heart and closes the defect but this is all done in the beating heart and blood so really challenging from a design perspective and um, that was really an amazing project to work on and it was very multidisciplinary we worked with a team of surgeons at Boston Children's Hospital we worked with the material scientists from another lab a local lab and um, that had designed this kind of light activated adhesive and the patch material and we de developed the delivery system and um, so that was another example of kind of a soft material that one is was licensed that technology and it's a startup now in Paris that I work for I consult for kind of on a part-time basis um, so that's moving forward and it's in animal studies and hopefully moving into clinical studies next year so so in that way you know I was able to keep my links with industry and still do I still work with industry a lot so yeah I think I was kind of trying to you know leverage the learnings I had from cardiac devices and industry but then learn these new kind of technologies and, and merge them and meld them to come up with alternative solutions and that's the approach I've taken since I started my own group and now we're applying these uh, technologies to other organs we have a, a diaphragmatic assist device that uses the same kind of soft robotic technology but helps patients to breathe if their diaphragm is dysfunctional uh, we also have um, devices that are more specific to patients with congenital heart defects. Some kids are born with one ventricle instead of two, and they go through a series of uh, surgeries to correct it, but they're left with kind of very poor exercise tolerance and low blood return to the lungs. Um, so it's amazing surgery, three surgeries before the age of five, 
but they have some, you know, they do have some kind of quality of life issues and they have a very different blood system or hemodynamics. And so we're working on an active device to help pump blood to the lungs for that particular patient population. And one of the advantages of being here in Boston is that we have, we collaborate a lot with Boston Children's Hospital where they have a number of patients with, you know, these kind of conditions. And it's very easy to collaborate with them. We're doing a, like an imaging study to better understand what this looks like and better design the devices. So uh, there's a there's a huge infrastructure of really great hospitals that we can uh, we can work with. So that helps a lot. I I watched one of your talks and I think I'm probably gonna get it wrong, but you were saying robotics person, kind of an, a graduate student, and then a surgeon walks into a bar and then they. Oh yeah. And I think that idea of kind of merging all of these areas of expertise, and I think that was in uh, respect to your heart sleeve a device. Yeah, yeah. I, even just kind of going into into that in a bit more detail about the, the sleeve and the heart. So what would a patient currently, or what is the current, I suppose, device for that? And how, I suppose, is your device improving? Yeah, so it depends on kind of, there's multiple types, heart failure and then, um, you know, depending on the severity, there's different treatment options. So there's medical management. But when that's exhausted, there's either a wait for a transplant, a heart transplant, but the supply is, is a lot lower than the demand. There's a big, long waiting list for heart transplants. And then there are these um, pumps called electroventricular assist devices that actually pump the blood for the heart. So they have been really successful. Originally, they were designed as a bridge to transplant. Um, and now they are, you know, so like patients are living with them for much longer and living with them for, you know, um, for the rest of their time. So they are great, but they do have some issues. Um, you know, they have issues sometimes with blood clotting, uh, with infection. Sometimes there's issues because the latest generation are continuous flow so not volatile flow which changes things and has some downstream effects so this is kind of the technology that we would be replacing or an alternative option to these left ventricular assist devices and i suppose your device was unique in the sense that it doesn't touch the blood yeah exactly yeah so if it doesn't touch the blood it can uh, avoid some of those clotting or coagulation issues um and then because it's around the outside of the heart um, you know it's, it doesn't come in contact at all with the blood but you can also kind of tune the level of assistance that you're providing and it can recreate the, um, the natural heart motion and we can implement potentially sensors to to monitor real, over time how it's performing and adjust it accordingly and you know maybe uh, support the heart so that it recovers some function uh, so you're kind of unloading it a little bit uh, analogous to if you had like a broken leg you put a cast on and you let it heal you know if you can kind of unload the heart for a while maybe there's some way that the heart can recover some of its function and then you could wean the patient off it potentially but that's not proven yet this is our dream but you have done it in a human heart no no we haven't done it in a human Ah, heart yet no we've we've only done it in preclinical so large animal models so we're we're not in in human testing with that device yet oh okay okay sorry i thought i saw a video and i was like thought that was a human. yeah it looks i mean the the large animal models are very similar to uh to human hearts it looks similar but no not not there quite yet there's a big um there's a big regulatory 
process that we would need to, to go through to get that approved and we'd need to do long-term studies and uh, there's quite a bit more work involved to get that into the into patients. And I suppose thinking about putting, you know, a self-device or any type of device into a patient, would there be immune effects? You know, would it would it create some sort of inflammation? Um, and I suppose how can you compass? Yeah, that? it's a great question. Yeah, definitely. There could be. That's, and we have to learn a lot more about that. There could be inflammation at the kind of the epicardial surface because it's moving, you know, against the heart. There's ways to mitigate that. But yeah, for sure, there could be effects that we were not aware of like and talk to me about the other kind of device that you've created this therapy I don't know if I'm going to get that uh, pronounced right yeah but I think yeah. That, that is to a reservoir for for maybe drug delivery you'll definitely explain it better than I will no 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 yeah no that's exactly it yeah it's an implantable reservoir for delivering uh, therapies either drugs or, or bioagent small molecule cells over time um, and it's refillable, so you can kind of have localized sustain and refillable delivery. So we started with that on the heart to deliver bioagents for um, preventing scar formation and um, adverse remodeling to heart failure after a person has a heart attack. And um, we showed in, in early studies that it was beneficial in preserving cardiac function or it was better than with, without any treatment and better with kind of a one-time delivery. And since that, we've kind of looked at other applications for this uh, reservoir. And we're currently doing studies where we're using it for type 1 diabetes and we're delivering cells that produce insulin to help patients who don't make insulin themselves. Uh, so that's a really exciting study that's ongoing at the moment. And then we've looked early work delivering um, immunotherapy for ovarian cancer. So, you know, kind of broadening the application of these, these reservoirs. <laughs> Great collaboration with Gary Duffy and Emer Dolan in Galway, um, where we looked at the effect of actuating these um, reservoirs. So cyclically moving them over time, twice a day for five minutes um, at like one hertz or once a second. And we showed that that can reduce the response in, within the body. So the firing body response in the capsule that forms around the device. So um, we're really kind of looking at how we can use that to, to our advantage. Um, because if there's too much of a capsule, then the delivery of anything through it becomes challenging. So if we can mitigate that or reduce it, with just movement, you know, no drugs, and um, that could be advantageous. Yeah, and I think just even just talk, thinking about the different applications that these, you know, devices can have, I suppose it strikes me that your team and your work is very multidisciplinary as well. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. We have, um, you know, mechanical engineers, material scientists, more kind of bioengineering focused um, students. We have computational modelers that don't do any experimental work. A far- we have a pharmacist. At the moment, I have two um, doctors working in the group. One has worked in the ICU, another is a vascular surgeon. So, and we collaborate a lot with with local hospitals. So, yeah, we have quite a quite a range. Of- and how do you, I suppose, model these devices? Do you do kind of like a little prototype first, or is it on the computer first? Yeah, because it's just so different to like the research I do. So I'm just fascinated yeah. with how 
you know you plan it out yeah 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 that's it we usually do like we'll design it in a computational software package like a CAD and we will prototype it physically test it in physical models on the bench and we do we put a lot of effort into developing good physical models that are dynamic and representative and then in parallel we look at it computationally with finite element software which is like kind of a software which allows you to apply the correct forces and strains and create realistic mechanical models so with both of those then we move to like more bench testing multiple iterations you know feedback from clinicians and then eventually to preclinical models and thinking about I suppose working in medical devices you know it's a lot of commercialization and filing patents and stuff like that do you enjoy that side of it? Yeah, I do. I, I really enjoy it. I mean, I'm definitely not an expert at all in commercializing. Um, I mean, I worked in industry for a while, but like more business side, I am learning. <laughs> I, you know, I think filing patents is very important and there's that's that's necessary. I, I enjoy learning about that. I just recently am part of this Future Founders program, which helps especially females it's specifically for female faculty at MIT which is helping with uh, commercializing or bringing technology out of the lab and learning the business side of things so in January I'll actually be spending two days in, in the business school here at MIT learning kind of some entrepreneur and commercialization skills yeah because you know there's a lot of skills that you need to have even just being a PI I always say this to people like it's kind of nearly team management <laughs> more than anything else Oh, for sure. Yeah, it's it's uh, program management and team management. My hu- husband is in medical devices. I met him in Abbott, actually, and he's a program manager. And I have to say, we're pretty much doing the same thing, just in different settings. Yeah. yeah. And do you, you probably have a, do you have quite a big teaching load uh, over in MIT? Yeah, I mean, uh, I have one class per semester. So one class in mechanical engineering and one class in IMS. Uh, this year it's a little different because I'm doing both my teaching in spring because we moved our medical device design class to spring so I uh, have less teaching load this semester although uh, I did teach a a seminar class on cardiovascular engineering and then next semester I teach both at Harvard Medical School and I teach the design class at MIT yeah really great the students are amazing and you know you learn so much from teaching them and yeah it's privileged to teach here it's a lot of work I mean you know obviously to keep the research and teaching going but it's it's a huge part of, of why I do this and presumably with COVID it must have been so much more challenging yeah there was a lot of virtual teaching for the last two years <laughs> and hybrid last year was hybrid um thinking about the role that you're in now you know what are your favorite things about academia and you know what what gets you up in the morning why do you love what you do yeah yeah um I think the students are a huge part of it like the students in the group are amazing the students I teach it's just so great to see them kind of like hone in on an interesting research question and really grow and develop it and become the experts on it you know by the end of their graduate um, studies they're like teaching me things yeah, it's it's amazing to, to kind of mentor them, see them grow and, you know, to have a great team. Like I really enjoy seeing members of the group work together and help each other on different parts of their research. That's really rewarding and kind of see it grow and like, you know, get more and more 
designs and products and animal models and test beds and you know more collaborations it's it's really um dynamic and it's very fun and you can be very flexible in working on what you think are interesting problems obviously there's constraints with funding you have to get funding to to work on certain things but there's just a huge opportunity to to work on very interesting and important problems and I suppose on the kind of flip side of that you know maybe what what frustrates you about academia or what would you like to see change I mean I think there's some issues with the kind of the funding review process the manuscript review process I think they're changing but it's difficult it's difficult for people at the early career stage especially when they have multiple uh, obligations with service and teaching and research and often you know family um, obligations and as well it's, it's sometimes difficult to keep on top of it all and with the tenure process here you're very acutely aware that you need need to be outputting in all of these areas and you need to be succeeding and there's metrics and it can be it can be tough to keep on top of it all but I think you know you just have to enjoy it and and, and do your best and try to not focus on that too much and just uh, you know do, do the research that you care about. But I mean thinking about you know your career progression it was huge that you just finished your PhD and I know you had to come back mm-hmm. for the two years but that was because of uh, yeah. funding but to get a faculty position straight off the back your PhD is I think practically unheard of. Yeah it was amazing really uh, and I'm so grateful to the you know the the hiring committee for taking a chance on me. I think, I think they did consider my time in industry as time where I was like growing and developing and in learning and and you know I think knew that I would apply that. So you know even though I was still in my in my PhD, I was I was like nine years since I graduated my undergrad. So yeah. in some ways that industry experience was like a postdoc of sorts but it happened before my PhD so the order of the sequence was a little unusual but um, luckily they saw the value in it. And you know it's suppose if people are kind of wondering or worried about leaving academia to, to get that industry experience I mean it all stands to you every experience stands to you and there is always ways oh, to get back in you know. Yeah absolutely I mean you know like you said a lot of it is, is managing teams managing your own time prioritizing what's important learning to work on on teams and you know on on different problems so you know the skills are are transferable and also I kind of try to avoid a thinking of like industry as completely distinct from academia because my work is at the intersection of both and like I mentioned I still work with industry consulting role and we have industry funded projects in the lab so my students work with industry regularly and um you know, I, I, I think that that you can you can live in a world where you kind of straddle the two. Yeah. I think when people are I often get asked like which should I do? And I think students who are making those choices or you know, young people that are making those choices should know that you can go one way and decide to go the other, or you can figure out a, a space in which you're you're in both worlds. 
definitely because uh, in industry there's there's often collaborations with academia too so you know I, I think you don't have to be like one or the other and it's so black and white there's a whole spectrum of, of really interesting work you can do yeah no definitely and I think that a lot of people will find that very helpful to hear um because I think there is sometimes that idea that you have to be postdoc route the whole way and you know you know that kind of way and then people get a bit afraid of trying out something new um speaking of I suppose you know juggling things and everything I'm just wondering you know as kind of a a woman in science and I know you have young kids how do you juggle family life and then academia I mean I try to involve family as much as I can they're often in here in the office or in the lab though you know Again, I tried to like integrate it a little bit and definitely during the pandemic, I mean, kids were there, I was working, so they they know what I do. They know the students, they're excited about, like they know where fun things are. In the <laughs> and equally, my students know my kids and uh, try to kind of, as best I can, integrate the two worlds. Um, it is challenging, I, I mean, I won't lie. Sometimes it's like very busy and then there's always things that come up with family is sometimes unexpected and you have to rejuggle and adapt and you know postpone meetings or take them when you're like with your kids whatever it is uh, people are generally very understanding and I think you just have to be flexible Often a lot of my work is done when the kids are gone to bed <laughs> you know or we have we have great support with the daycare and you know we do our best <laughs> to do both <laughs> That's so funny that they come into the lab. Do you think either of them will? You have two girls. Three. I have three now. Yeah, I have a baby as well. She's uh, 10 months. Ah, do you think any of them will be budding engineers? (laughs) Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. Engineers or scientists, obviously, you know, they may, they'll find their own way and and do what they're interested in. But yeah, they seem, they seem interested in a five-year-old that's turning six next week. She is, is very interested and, loves playing in the lab. So. Uh, I suppose, Ellen, my last question for you is if you weren't a researcher uh, and if you weren't living, you know, this career that you're that you're leading, uh, where do you think your life might have ended up or what different alternative career might you have had? Yeah, I'd probably be in industry doing the same thing. <laughs> yeah, I can't really imagine doing anything too different. I guess if I had done medicine, I'd probably be practicing, but I like to think I'd be a cardiologist or in the same field but just maybe doing the procedures um, yeah but yeah I can't imagine being doing anything like wildly different from from what I'm doing now well this has been so lovely thank you so much for for coming on the podcast and chatting to me today yeah thanks so much for inviting me and uh yeah it's a pleasure to, to chat about it great opportunity thanks for listening to my rambling <laughs> that's it for another week of Unraveling Science. A big thanks again to our sponsor Biosciences, now part of Thermo Fisher Scientific. And if you like this episode, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.